The sermon text for this morning is John chapter 5, verses 19 through 29. As we continue our study through the Gospel of John, uh, we are moving into a portion of the Gospel that describes the increasing tension between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders who were now becoming more and more aware of his ministry and aware of what he was teaching. John the Evangelist summarizes the growing tension there in chapter 5, verse 18, where we read, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now, in corporate worship, uh, Jews sometimes spoke of God as our Father. But the individual way that Jesus spoke of God as his own Father, we know that that dis- uniquely displayed the Father-Son relationship that Jesus had with God. Notice that Jesus did not claim to take the place of Yahweh, and he did not claim to be an alternative to Yahweh, which is what the Jewish religious leaders thought he was doing when they accused him of making himself equal with God. But what Jesus instead was saying was that he was sent from God to accomplish the work of salvation, to usher in Sabbath rest for his people, as we studied last week. So that he, as the divine Son of God, we know was the Word made flesh, that in the beginning he was with God and he was God. And we see how he expands on this truth in our text this morning, how Jesus really dives into his relationship with the Father, and then he explains what it means for us. He explains in the passage that is before us this morning his own relationship with the Father And then he explains what it means for you and for me. So let's read John chapter 5, verses 19 through 29. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is 
the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So we see first in this passage how Jesus describes his relationship with the Father. And this is going to lead him to explaining what that relationship means for you and me. But first, he explains how he's connected to and relates to God the Father. And we need to understand that relationship because Jesus' relationship with God truly affects us, loved ones. We can think about uh, a mom, a dad, and their children, and how the relationship between a mom and a dad affects their children. If the parent's relationship is is joyful and is biblical, their kids usually thrive. There's peace in the home, but we know that often if the parents are against each other and if there's tension, the kids feel it. See, the parent's relationship, because those parents are in authority over their children, affects the whole household. It's kind of the same idea here. While what Jesus says about his relationship with God might seem to us like high and and lofty theology, we will see that it does affect us because God, loved ones, is in authority over us. He has supreme authority over all of his creation. Notice in our text that the Lord Jesus repeats that phrase, truly, truly, I say to you, he repeats it three times. It means that what he's about to say is very important. And so we read in verse 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. We see in this verse that Jesus first explains that he submits to the Father. He submits to the Father. Now remember, the religious leaders had accused Jesus of making himself equal with God. And this made it sound like Jesus was in a rivalry with God the Father, or perhaps that they were independent somehow of each other. But Jesus says here that he can do nothing of his own accord. He only does what he sees the Father doing. He's pointed out the fact that there is unity between him and the Father, not rivalry, not independence, but he's pointing out that there is true unity and that their unity is so tight, so strong, that not only does the Son always do what pleases the Father, as he will say in John chapter 8, verse 29, but he can only do what he sees the Father doing. See, far from contradicting the oneness of God, as we read from Deuteronomy, where we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. See, far from contradicting that, Jesus here is reinforcing it. But he's revealing also the deeper relationship among the persons of the one true God. Sometimes in theology, we distinguish between the ontological trinity and the 
economic trinity. When we talk about the ontological trinity, ontology is the study of being. And so when we talk about the ontological trinity, what we're referring to is God in his being. We're referring to the fact that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who together are one being. This is who God is in himself, apart from his creation. And so in the Godhead, when we speak of his ontology, we emphasize unity. We emphasize equality among the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a helpful summary of what we believe in chapter 2, section 3, explains this so helpfully. In the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. This section here explaining the ontological trinity. But we can also, loved ones, speak about the economic trinity. And and this refers to the representative roles of each of the divine persons. So when we speak of, of the economic trinity, what we're dealing with here is roles. With uh, roles which describe God engaged with his creation. God administering his person, his uh, purposes in the world that he created. And so when we speak about the economic trinity, we can rightly say that it's the Father who sends the Son into the world for our redemption. And it's the Son who accomplishes our redemption on the cross. See, the Father didn't die on the cross. The Holy Spirit didn't die on the cross. It was the Son who became incarnate who died on the cross. And then it is the Spirit who applies that redemption to us. So one God, and yet when we speak of the economic trinity, we're speaking about how their roles play out in creation. So we do not have three gods. We have one God and three persons, and the three persons are distinguished in terms of what they do. We sometimes, in Reformed churches, describe this as the covenant of peace, what God decreed before creation and how his decree has worked out in time and in space. And so, in the economic sense, loved ones, Jesus, the divine Son of God, equal in power and glory with the Father and the Spirit, he willingly submitted to the Father's will during his earthly life in order to accomplish our salvation. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes about this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, where he writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. See, Paul there explains that though Christ was in the form of God, though he was truly God, equal in power and, and glory with God the Father and God the Spirit, Paul explains that he willingly took the form of a servant. He became truly human so that during his earthly ministry, when people looked upon Christ in his incarnation, what did they see? They saw a human person. They saw a man, a person with a true body and a reasonable soul. For he willingly humbled himself. Why? The Apostle Paul explains, in order to serve others, to serve his people. He emptied himself, not laying aside his deity or subtracting from his divine attributes, but he humbled himself by adding to himself a true human nature. He veiled himself in the incarnation. The one who was truly God became truly man so that he was fully God and fully man. And notice how throughout these verses the Apostle Paul uh, explains that Christ willingly humbled himself. He wasn't forced into this by God the Father. He wasn't coerced by God the Spirit into fulfilling this great mission of saving his people from their sins. In verse 8, Paul very clearly says in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus humbled himself. And in John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge have I received from my Father. And so, loved ones, that's what Jesus is explaining here in our passage this morning to the religious leaders and to those around him. He's explaining that there's no conflict or contradiction between him and the Father because they are one. See, the Son, he says, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And so there's never any contradiction between Jesus and God the Father. They, together with the Holy Spirit, are working to accomplish our salvation, to bring about the great plan of redemption that was made before time. So Jesus explains next that the Father loves him, that he submits willingly to the Father, and now he explains that the Father loves him for his obedient work. He explains how it is that the Son can do whatever the Father does in verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. See, the love of the Father for the Son is displayed, Jesus says, in the continuous revelation of all that he does uh, to the Son. What the Father is doing, he's revealing to the incarnate Son. So Jesus is explaining here that there was an ongoing, unbroken communion between them, a communion that was not broken during Jesus' earthly ministry, so that the Father, we read, loves the Son. There's this constant communion between them. We hear this proclaimed very clearly in passages such as Matthew chapter 
3, verses 13 through 17, which describes Jesus' baptism. We read that when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. See, the Father there publicly declared his love for the Son. And we know that not only does the Father love the Son, but Jesus also loves the Father. Their love is mutual. Jesus will say in John chapter 14, verse 31, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And so again, Jesus and the Father are not at odds with each other. See, the religious leaders thought that by making himself equal with God, they thought that Jesus was, was blasphemy. But no, loved ones, he was, he was simply explaining the truth. And he was pointing out the fact that his ministry was, was now just ramping up, that he had already done several signs and he had revealed his glory already in several ways, but that there was more to come. As he says, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. And then in the next few verses, Jesus begins to explain how and, and why this pure and, and loving relationship between God the Father and God the Son, how that relationship affects us. How this sometimes hard to fully understand theology actually does affect our lives, loved ones. And we see this under the next sermon point, uh, Jesus and Judgment. Because we read in verses 21 through 23, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. See, Jesus is pointing out here that his relationship with the Father is so united that they together give life, both physical and spiritual. As the Father created all things through the Son and brought life to earth, the Son is able to do the same. Jesus will, we know, raise Lazarus from the dead, showing that he has power over physical life, but he will also grant spiritual life to those who repent and believe. He will do so through his powerful saving work. And not only that, but the Father has determined that the Son will be entrusted with judgment. In the Old Testament, God was recognized as the judge of all the earth. Throughout the Old Testament, we know that Yahweh frequently exercised judgment on the lives of his covenant people as he uh, disciplined the tribes of Israel when they forsook him and broke covenant, and how God even brought judgment on the surrounding nations. For example, the ten plagues upon Egypt in the book of Exodus, they were judgments against 
Pharaoh's unwillingness to acknowledge God's glory and to worship him. And, and Jesus says here that that authority to judge is his. Loved ones, why did the Father give this authority to the Son? And Jesus explains, he says in verse 23, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now think about how profound this statement is. Remember, God will not share his glory with anything in creation. He says in Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. There is nothing in creation that is worthy of receiving the praise and the glory and the honor that is his alone because he alone is God. And that's why Jesus' affirmation here in verse 23 is so profound. He is saying that God wants the Son to receive honor and glory and praise. Why? Because the Son is God. He is divine. He is eternal. And so, see, far from robbing God of his glory by glorifying the Son, we are glorifying God. Remember again the context of these verses, loved ones. The Jewish religious leaders were accusing Jesus of making himself equal with God, which they believed was blasphemous on his part. And they were planning to kill Jesus for these very strong claims that he was making. We read again in John chapter 5, verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. You see, loved ones, this is where those religious leaders were wrong. Because glorifying Jesus does not rob God of the glory that is due to God alone. No, because giving praise to the Son is to give praise to the one true God. And therefore, to reject the Son is to reject the one true God. This is why the Apostle Paul concludes the passage from Philippians chapter 2, what's known as the kenosis passage. It speaks of how Jesus humbled himself after explaining Jesus' humility and his suffering and his death, which we read about from Philippians 2, all of that in accordance with the eternal plan of, of God to save his people. Paul continues and says, Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, far from robbing God of glory by worshiping Christ the Son, God is glorified by worshiping Christ the Son, because Christ the Son is God. And this is where the passage before us this morning in John chapter 5 
really comes home. It really begins to, we really begin to see how it all applies to us today at this very moment. And if you're following along in the sermon outline, this is the third point, Jesus and us. Because we have to keep the context in perspective. See, Jesus is answering the religious leaders, explaining why rather than trying to kill him, they should fall down and worship him. See, they want to kill him because he claims to be God, but in fact, he is God. And because he is God, nothing less than trusting him, placing all our hopes and fears upon him, will do. Jesus explains in verses 24 through 29 of John chapter 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And as he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith very helpfully summarizes what Jesus is teaching here and what we see throughout the New Testament. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 33, section 1, it reads, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment has been given by the Father. In that day, not only shall the apostate angels be judged, but also shall all people who have ever lived on earth appear before the judgment seat of Christ in order to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive judgment according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. See, what, what Jesus is teaching us, that he is God, he is therefore the judge of all the earth, and then he is very clearly drawing the conclusion that nothing less than falling down before him in faith and worship will do. You know, some of the religious people of his day called him rabbi, or they referred to him as teacher. And they believed that this was flattering enough, that this was respectable enough in order to refer to Jesus but you see, loved ones, that's not nearly enough. Why? Because he is so much more. See, if, if you refer to someone as merely a teacher, then you can take or leave what he says. Because if you disagree with him, you can say, well, I see things differently, so let's just agree to disagree. But if he is God, the divine son, equal in power and glory with the Father and the Spirit, then you cannot disagree with him. Because to do so, then, is to reject God himself. 
And Jesus points out here that such rejection will lead to condemnation on the last day. And we see this today, don't we? Many people have uh, differing views and opinions about Jesus. Some are flattering and some are not. Some secular historians, for example, they readily agree that uh, Jesus was a historical person. And they readily agree that, yes, he was crucified, just as the New Testament records. There are Muslims today who will, yes, agree that yeah, Jesus was a historical person and, and he was a prophet. And, and many Jews today will uh, say that they believe that Jesus was also a historical person, that he was a rabbi who sought to reform Judaism, but who was ultimately a victim of uh, Roman rule and conquest. And there are even many non-Christians today, people who might label themselves as spiritual but not religious, who will say things like, well, you know, I like some of the things that Jesus said, even though when you ask him about what he said, they often misquote him. You know, most people, loved ones, today have no problem if we say that Jesus was a way and, or is a way that leads to God, that he is one of many roads that leads to God. But friends, what we see in Scripture is that he is not one among many, that he is the only way. Jesus said very clearly in John chapter 4, 14, no one comes to the Father except through me. That every other road or path that people believe leads to God leads only to further darkness and sin and death and condemnation. Every other path leads to judgment and wrath. See, from the opening verses of this gospel, John wants us to know very clearly that Jesus is the divine Son of God. And as <clears throat> the divine Son of God, he has all authority and power and therefore must receive all glory and honor. To reject Jesus is to reject God. C.S. Lewis, he wrote in uh, Mere Christianity, it's a quote that's pasted in the uh, Lord's Day worship devotion and questions for today. Lewis writes very clearly saying, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Christ. They say things like, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. Because a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. Lewis continues on and says, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, as the religious leaders in Jesus' day did. Or, or, 
you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Friends, the the good news of the gospel is that if you fall at Jesus' feet and you call him Lord and God, if you repent and believe, he will bring you from death to life. He has the power. He has the authority. And we see throughout the scriptures that he is willing for those who repent and believe to accept them and to rejoice over them. We find wonderful assurance in scripture that true believers, therefore, need not fear judgment day because the judge on that day is our savior, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. And there is therefore no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, we praise you for your plan of salvation. That uh, though Adam sinned greatly against you in the garden, and we sin daily against you in thought, word, and deed, yet you loved us and sent your only son, the Lord Jesus, to live a life of obedience and to die a, a cursed death in order that we might be saved. Lord, what a glorious truth. We thank you for the joy of knowing Christ in this life. Thank you for the work of your spirit in our hearts, your spirit who is molding us and shaping us daily to be more like Christ. But we especially thank you this morning for the promise of Christ's return. We read in our text. We see how this life is a veil of tears that it is brief and, and fragile and, and so difficult at times. Thank you for sustaining us in this life, but thank you especially for the promise of eternal life that we have with Christ in glory. Lord, we long for that day. We long for Jesus' return. And so we pray together with one heart and mind, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.